Hi, Rabbi. Everybody, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I hope you're holding up. Yes, I hope you are too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll just wait another uh, few seconds or so. Yeah, our, our last class ended a little, a few, like just a few minutes ago, I think, a little late. Oh, that's, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, let me ask uh, anyone that knows the technical question. I was told that at the end of every class, uh, the teacher is supposed to close the meeting. Yeah. How, how do you close a meeting? I, I see a leave the meeting icon. I don't see a close the meeting icon. Uh, where, I where think do I you can like, I think when you go to, when you click leave meeting, when you're, because you're host, yeah. you yeah. can click like end meeting. Like once okay. you already click leave. Oh, once I click leave. Okay, got you. Right. Yeah, it'll pop up that says, do you want to end the meeting or transfer host? Just click end. I'll end it. Okay. Thank. Thanks so much. No problem. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I think uh, we, we can begin. Can everybody can hear me? Okay, I guess you're muted. Okay. Yeah, perfect. That's great. All right. Thank you so much. So anyway, I hope everybody is well. Um, uh, Zoom is a wonderful thing. Uh, a month ago, I had not, not even heard of Zoom. I had heard of Skype, and now I, I use it almost, uh, I use it several times a day. Uh, the only bad thing is you get to see how messy my office is, which is uh, a, little, a little embarrassing. I see 
all of you are in such neat, clean, organized rooms. So I'm actually uh, very, very jealous of uh, how you manage, maybe your mom manages to uh, keep it so uh, keep it so clean. But okay, so today we are going to continue a little bit. It's more of a miscellaneous discussion of some halachic issues in the age of the coronavirus. Just, you know, this is something that uh, people are asking. Uh, you know, I am a member of the Rabbinical Council of America, uh, which is a, you know, a large organization of Orthodox rabbis. And uh, they, po they keep on posting new halachic shilas that were asked uh, to Rabbi Schechter, to other postkin of, of the RCA. So some of them are, you know, are not particularly interesting, but, but some of them are. And I'm going to go over a few things there. Now, last week, you'll remember, just to uh, remind you of what we talked about last week, we actually talked about two very, very uh, important questions. Uh, question one was the effect of corona on contracts. If you paid for a Pesach program and uh, the, the program was canceled, do you get your money back? Uh, if you have a commercial lease for an office and you have to shut down your office, uh, do you get your money back? If your kid is enrolled in a playgroup or a gun and that's canceled, right? The issue of refunds uh, is a very, very uh, tricky uh, issue. Uh, and uh, if you remember, our conclusion last week was, as is always the case, that there are many machloks in here. Uh, and if you make your personal decision that you don't want to go to a Pesach program because it's risky, or you don't want to send your child to a gun because it's risky, that's your problem. And that certainly does not excuse you from paying because that's a personal decision that you have made. If, on the other hand, the government mandates that a program be closed, then under those uh, circumstances, uh, you're not getting what you paid for. And if you're not getting what you paid for, uh, you would be allowed to get a refund unless the contract says that deposits are non-refundable. So then you'd be in trouble because of that, uh, because of that contract. Now, let me give you a third case. I'm not sure if I mentioned it last week, but this were, these were cases that actually came to me. Let's say you have an apartment in Yerushalayim and uh, you left uh, Israel for a vacation. And while you're on vacation, Corona breaks out and you're not able due to travel restrictions to come back into the country. So you want to get out of your lease. You don't want to pay rent for the months that you are not in the country. Uh, I actually uh, poskin on that issue that I think you do have to pay rent because the fact that you're not out of the country, that's your bad luck. Meaning to say, it's not like the situation where the government closes the office. Uh, here, the government may, even if the government limited travel, which now actually it's not so limited, but even when travel was actually limited, uh, the fact that you decided to leave the country was not something that Corona made you, lose, uh, made you do. That was your own decision. So I would differentiate between a government-mandated shutdown of an office or a school versus a government-mandated restriction on travel, which I think does not release you from your obligations because your decision to leave the country, even though you had no idea corona was coming, is a private individual decision. So that's what I feel, although I have to admit I, I saw a prominent rabbi actually paskin that people who could not return to their apartments did not have to pay rent 
for that period. So there is such a psak, but uh, my understanding, which you know, again, I, I'm probably wrong if this other rabbi uh, said it, but my understanding would be that you should pay rent under those circumstances because your not being in the country is kind of your tough luck. Uh, that was not something that Corona necessitated that you leave the country. So that was the first issue. I'm just reviewing a little bit. And the second issue we discussed is a much more heartbreaking issue. But Baruch Hashem, uh, we haven't come there. We were afraid we would get there, but we have not come there, and hopefully we will not get there. And that is, how do you allocate medical resources when there isn't enough to go around? The big fear had been with ventilators, uh, that the fear was that the coronavirus would spread so rapidly, unless you had social distancing measures, that uh, there'll be more people that would need ventilators uh, then there are ventilators, uh, and as a result, uh, the medical profession would have to decide who gets what. Now, this is, in medical ethics, this is simply referred to as the allocation of scarce medical resources. And it's not unique to corona. It comes up in a million different contexts. Uh, who gets the dialysis machine if there's not enough to go around? Who gets respirators? Who gets ICU, intensive care unit beds? Who gets medicines or vaccines when there's not enough to go around? This is the problem of scarcity. And uh, a term that is often used, which is borrowed from the military, is triage. Triage is deciding who gets the help if you can't give it to everybody. And here, again, just to remind you, because when it's a week, you know, our memories have to be, my memory has to be refreshed a little bit. Uh, the, the classical text on priorities is a Mishnah in Tractate Horiot. And the Mishnah says a rule that we actually do not follow today. And that is, it kind of says, the Kohen beats the Levi, the Levi beats the Israelite, uh, the Israelite beats the Mamzer, uh, the man beats the woman, but the Talmud Chacham overrides everybody and, and the like. Uh, even a Mamzer Talmud Chacham has priority in being saved over a Kohen Gadol, uh, the high priest who is Am Haaretz, who is ignorant of, of Torah. So the Mishnah indicates that triage is to be determined by what you might call religious value. And even though it's very, very true that men and women are considered to be uh, equally beloved in the eyes of Hashem, the Mishnah does not mean men are better than women. But Lamaisa is a practical matter because men have more mitzvos than women. We save the person who is able to do more mitzvos. Now, of course, the interesting question is, even if you followed that Mishnah, what would, what would you say if you had a non-religious man and a religious woman? In terms of mitzvot, the religious woman is doing more mitzvahs. Would that make a difference? I, I don't know. But the bottom line is that this Mishnah is not the rule that we follow. And Ramosha Feinstein even said that we don't follow this Mishnah today because we're not able to make judgments of comparative righteousness, religiosity, spiritual value. Uh, I do want to point out that in the Mishnah, you see a very important distinction between taking a life and saving a life. By that, I mean the following. All of you know the famous case 
if the guy goes over to you and says, I'm going to kill you or unless you kill somebody else, the halacha is you are not allowed to kill another person to save your life or even to save the life of your, of, of your children. If God forbid, I mean, uh, these are nightmare scenarios. If somebody says, if you don't kill X, I'm going to kill your child. The halacha is you can kill the guy that's threatening you. He's called a rodef, but you cannot kill an innocent person. And the reason the Gemara gives is the famous reason. Who says your blood or the blood of your child is any redder? People often translate it as sweeter, but really the language is redder than that other person's blood. Who says your life is any better? And not only do we say that when it's one against one, we even say that when it's one against many. The guy says, give me a Jew that I can kill or I will wipe out the city. The halacha is we have to let the city be wiped out and not pick a Jew to be delivered for murder because maybe that one life is worth more than everybody else. Now, if they ask for a specific person, that's a big machlokas that we talked about, uh, I think, a number of times. I don't want to repeat it today. But the point I just want to make, and this is something to ponder, is that when you have to make a decision to kill somebody, you are not allowed to make judgments who is more worthy than somebody else. I don't say, for example, oh, kill the Israel or I will kill the Kohen. We don't say, oh, let's save the Kohen and kill the, the Israel. Because when it comes to affirmatively killing somebody, you're not allowed to make the judgment that one life is better than another life. Even if the choice is between the Gadol Hador and a drug addict. Right? It's pretty clear that the Gadol Hador, Rebbe or whatever it would be, it, the life is more, more important than somebody else's. And yet, Halacha does not allow you to make that decision. I mean, it's so strange. It's so almost bizarre, although I shouldn't describe any halacha as bizarre, that if somebody said, kill this bum or I'll kill the greatest tzaddik of the generation, the halacha is you cannot kill the bum even to save the greatest tzaddik of the generation. Amazing. And yet, the Mishnah says, when it comes to who you rescue, meaning to say, who do you save if you're the lifeguard and you can only rescue one person? Or who gets the dialysis machine? There we do say that the Talmud Chacham or the Tzaddik has priority. Even though the net result is the same thing, the other person is going to die. So I hope what you see here is something that's a little bit inconsistent, a little tricky, a little bit hard to get your finger on. And that is the distinction between killing somebody where you cannot make the judgment who is better than somebody else versus saving somebody where in fact you do make those judgments. Now, let me give you an example of, of how, how difficult this is to really, really apply uh, in practice. Um, I can't even remember this anymore. What was the name of the famous 
where, where the woman was told by the Nazis to uh, kill one of her kids. Which kid did she want to save? Do you remember that? She had, uh, Sophie's Choice? Yeah, Sophie's Choice, right, right, Sophie's Choice, right. So Sophie's Choice was a, was a book, was a novel, uh, was a movie, uh, was a play. So uh, the, the, it actually did not involve a Jewish woman even, but whatever it is, uh, this woman has two children. The Nazis say, choose one or we will kill both. What would Halacha say? If you choose one, one lives and the other dies. If you don't make a choice, because I don't have the right to say whose life is better, they're both going to die. So does halacha allow you to choose who's going to die? So semantically, we have a very, very curious distinction. If the Nazis said to them, give us one of your sons or we will kill both of them, the halacha is you wouldn't be allowed to choose. That's like the Goyim surrounding the city and saying, give us a Jew to kill or we'll kill you all. Halacha says you have to allow the whole city to die. If on the other hand, the Nazi doesn't say, give us one of your sons and you can keep the other. But instead the Nazi says, we're going to kill both of your sons, but you have the right to choose one who will live. That's like allocating a dialysis machine. Two people are going to die, and I give the machine to one of them. Very strange. Does the halacha really depend on what the Nazi says? If the Nazi says, give us the one that we're going to kill, you can't do it. If the Nazi says, take the one you want to save, you could do it. Very, very difficult. I, I admit that I myself come against kind of a wall here that the halacha, which distinguishes between murdering and saving, when it comes to murdering, you cannot make judgments. When it comes to saving, you can make judgments. But be it as it may, the allocation issue in terms of the mission of Horius is that we look at a certain hierarchy based on mitzvos, commandments, and the like. But Rav Moshe Feinstein and other great gedolim say, we do not apply this rule in the modern hospital setting, but rather the rule that we do apply is roughly analogous to medical triage itself. And that is, when we have a scarcity of resources, we allocate resources to where they will do the most good. And therefore, if you have two people, even if one is a great Talmud Chacham, but in addition to Corona, let's say, they have heart condition, they have stroke, and it's unlikely that they will recover fully, even with the ventilator. And on the other, the other patient is a 25-year-old who's very healthy otherwise, and will have a full recovery. So the halacha actually says, you allocate the resource where it will save the greatest amount of life and the like. Uh, so this is what halacha says. Halacha does allow uh, medical triage based on medical efficacy, although you never really know. But the exception is once the resource has been allocated, 
once a patient has been put on a respirator, a ventilator, you cannot take it away from them, even to give it to somebody who would be uh, a, a more deserving candidate based on these criteria. And then I indicated last week that there's a machlokas, should you therefore not put the older person on to keep the ventilator for the other person? Or can you put him on with the understanding that it will be removed if somebody else comes in? It's a very complicated question exactly. What are you supposed to uh, do under those circumstances? Okay, so those were the two issues that we discussed last week. Uh, one is uh, the effect of corona on contractual obligations, and the other is the effect of corona on the allocation of scarce medical resources. Uh, what I want to talk about today, again, is a miscellaneous. They're not really connected to anything. Uh, and that is, let me talk a little bit about some interesting psukim that we have regarding toveling dishes. And for this, I have to give a little background. I hope that you are familiar generally, because many religious Jews are not familiar with this, about the mitzvah de Oraisa, that not only do married women have to go to the mikvah, but there's a mikvah for your dishes, for your pots, for your pans, for your cutlery and the like. And this goes by the term tevilas kalim, the immersion of utensils that are used in the pre preparation of food and in the cooking and eating of food. Uh, what is the underlying concept of being tovel a dish? Why are you tovel a dish? So interestingly enough, conceptually, it's like a conversion because we say that a Jewish meal is like a korban to God. Shulchan domel imizbeach, right? A shulchan, a, a, a meal that you give with brachos and with Torah and thanking Hashem. Uh, for a Jew, even the physical eating becomes an act of holiness. And therefore, when you have pots and pans and dishes and cutlery that are now going to be used, they were bought from a non-Jew, they originally were owned by a non-Jew, and now they're going to be used in the divine service of God. So the pots and the pans have to undergo a conversion of sorts, and that conversion is their immersion in a kosher mikvah. This is called to be las kalim, and it's a very important halacha. In other words, if it was manufactured or was purchased from a non-Jewish ownership, a Jew who wants to use it for food preparation must immerse it in a mikvah. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details here. Uh, suffice it to say, it only applies if the utensil is either metal or glass. It does not apply to plastic. It does not apply to unglazed stoneware, which is pottery. Uh, it does apply to china, because although china is also pottery, but there is a glass glaze over the china, and therefore you are togel it. So that's the first rule. It does not, does not apply to wood, does not apply to plastic, does not apply to unglazed stoneware. Uh, a second rule is that it may not apply to temporary utensils that you intend to throw away after one use. Now, this is again a big machlokas, but the classic example would be 
aluminum tins that you tend you intend to discard after using them once. So there are poskim that say you don't have to be toggle them. Now, I want to dispel a misconception. You will sometimes have people tell you you are allowed to use a pot once without being toggled it. That is not true. It is not that you can use it once without being toggled it. Rather, if you're only going to use it once, there is a basis for not being toggled. But if it is a pot that you are planning to use again and again and again, then you have to be toggled it even before the first use. Okay, so be sure you understand that. A lot of people misstate this principle. So that's called the Chad Pami principle, the one-time use. Uh, the next rule is that you only have to be tovel if it's used in either the uh, final cooking of food, like pots, or the eating of the food, such as uh, dishes and cutlery and, and the like. But things that are used at a preliminary stage of food preparation, where even after you use this uh, kli, the food is not raw oi to eat. An example might be poultry shears, where you cut raw chicken, even though that is preparing the food, but it is not preparing the food in the final stages of consumption. Again, this is a machlokas. I'm not saying, I'm not saying everybody would agree with this, but there are postcom that say that poultry shears that are only used to cut raw chicken rather than cook chicken, you don't have to be tovel because it is early in the process. Similarly, can openers. Can openers may touch the food, but a can opener is not something that's used to prepare food or to eat food. So actually can openers, uh, you don't have to be tovel uh, precisely for that, for that reason, because they are not kalim that are used in preparation of, of, of food. They are simply opening up the opening up the uh, containers and the like. Now, one of the big questions that people always have is, what if you have things like coffee makers or urns or electrical appliances, toasters, toaster ovens? So toaster ovens actually are pretty easy because toaster ovens, the only part you have to be tovel is the tray on which the food rests. So if it's a removable tray, just be toggled the removable tray and that's it. You don't have to be toggled the framework of the, of the oven. But a regular toaster, you don't have that option. And same thing with a water urn and with a coffee maker. And the big problem there is that people are always afraid that if you get these electronic appliances wet, they can short circuit. And when you plug it in, uh, they can be destroyed. So the question is, are you mechuyav, are you obligated to be tovel a toaster, a coffee maker, or an electric urn. So once again, I'm not giving you definitive answers because I'm, I'm, because I'm really only mentioning this whole subject because of a certain corona aspect that's gonna come up, but I'm giving you a, a little bit of an introduction uh, before we get into the particular question I wanted to discuss. And that is the issue of coffee makers, uh, toasters, and water urns is a big, 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 big machlokas. Some opinions say, yeah, tovel it, immerse it. Now you don't have to immerse the plug, but you can 
hold it by the plug and dunk it in the water. And they then advise that don't use it for 72 hours to be sure that it gets thoroughly dried out. And then after 72 hours, you can plug it in and no guarantees, but the derech klau, generally, it's gonna be okay. Meaning as long as you don't plug it in while it's still wet, and some people even recommend using a hairdryer to blow dry it, uh, to dry it out, uh, turn it upside down, don't use it for 72 hours, and it'll be okay. That's view number one. View number two takes the position, and this is a very fascinating header, that anything that is attached to the ground does not have to be tovo. It's not a movable vessel. So if these are vessels that you, uh, you uh, plug into a wall socket, they are called mechubar to the karka, and therefore you never have to be tovo anything that is plugged into a wall socket because that's treated as attached to the house and the house is attached to the ground. Now, of course, that would be interesting. That would only apply, well, actually, the truth, I was thinking that even if you're camping, even if you're camping out in the forest, I mean, if you have a socket, so the socket is built into the ground or something like that, so uh, it would be the same thing. That is uh, the argument number one to be lenient. And then there's an interesting argument number two from Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Moshe Feinstein argues the only type of cooking implements that have to be tovel are those implements that cook food that would be inedible in its raw state. So a typical pot, you can cook a potato. So a potato is not edible in its raw state. So that's called a clay that is making a meal. But he said, things that heat up water or toast bread, since the bread is edible even before you put it in the toaster, and the water is drinkable even before you heat it up to make tea or coffee. So Rabbi Feinstein said, it is not converting the inedible into the edible, and therefore that is not treated as a pot for which you have to be togo. Now, I'm not sure if Rabbi Feinstein's hedger uh, would apply totally to a coffee maker because it's true that in the coffee maker, you're also putting in water, but on the other hand, some new brewing is taking place in the maker itself that you otherwise wouldn't have. So I'm not sure how that would apply to a coffee maker, but uh, this is Rav Moshe Feinstein's famous heter for bread toasters and for uh, water urns that you don't have to be tovel because the bread was edible uh, without the toaster and the water was drinkable uh, without the water urn. Not everybody agrees with Rav Moshe. Uh, I myself, uh, excuse me, generally follow the view that I do immerse uh, these types of vessels and I wait 72 hours and the Baruch Hashem, generally speaking, things have been, uh, things have been okay. Okay, so why am I bringing all of this up? So now let me raise a question because this is something that I think some of you might face uh, very often. And that is, I had mentioned in passing that you're not allowed to use a pot or cutlery or dishes that have not been toveled in a mikvah, if it was bought from a guy or made by a guy. A lot of things in Eretz Israel, by the way, don't need to be immersed because of that reason. So here's the question. Let's say my parents 
uh, are either not from, they're not religious, they're not kashrus observant, or even if they are kashrus observant, you know, they're not so fanatic that they take all their dishes to the mikvah. But they were nice enough to give me kosher dishes and kosher pots. Let's say they even koshered the kitchen. They approached the nice Chabad Shaliach of their town and the Chabad Shaliach. I don't know if Chabad is tovel dishes for people. I'm not sure if they do that, but, but let's say they koshered, but they weren't tovel. So the question is, am I allowed to eat there? Um, so here is the important thing you need to understand. You need to understand that many poskim say that the pro the mitzvah of being taivul akli is a Torah commandment if it's glass or metal. Well, metal is Torah and glass is rabbinic, but you know you're you're obligated to be tovel. But the secondary rule that you're not allowed to eat from the dishes or the pots unless they're tovel. So. You have to understand what that means exactly. I'm not allowed to use the pot unless it was toveled. But let's say somebody cooked the food for me and served me the food. I am allowed to eat the food. The food is not treif, meaning the iser is the iser of using the pot or using the fork or using the plate. So I have to use paper plate or plastic uh, spoon. But in terms of the pot, the only prohibition would be for me to cook in the pot before it was tovel. There would be no iser for me to eat the product that was cooked. So if your mother is the one that did the cooking and she serves you meat that was cooked in a kosher pot that was untoveled, there is absolutely no problem you have in eating that meat. Your only problem would be you wouldn't be allowed, until I'll give you another view, you wouldn't be allowed to use the fork or the plate that wasn't toveled in eating the meat because you're not allowed to use that. But the meat itself does not become treif because it was cooked in an untoveled pot. That's a very important thing to keep in mind. Now, there's a further rule that says that even the iser of using the pot and using the plate is only on the person who has the responsibility to be tovel, and that's the Jewish owner. And it does not apply to his guests or his children or the members of the family. So according to that, you would even be allowed to use mom's pot to cook because the chiyuv, the obligation of tevila, is on the owner of the Jewish owner of the utensil. It does not apply to other people. So again, I'm giving you different views just so you understand a little bit how tevila's kalim works. Let me mention one final uh, general aspect and then I'll move to the corona question. Rabbi? Yeah. If you don't yeah. mind a question. Sure. Um, what about if you are in someone's home where, let's say, you're not sure if they would have, it's a Jewish home, um, you're not sure if they would have toiled the dishes or not, um, and they offer you, let's say, I don't know, they, they put like pieces of celery onto a plate, like a real plate. Um, so is, 
can you say that you can eat off of that plate because you, it's not your obligation to toivel it? You're not sure if it's toivel. Should you have to check? What would you do in that situation? Yeah, so, so, so that's, that's the psaki that I just told you, that since it's not your obligation to be toivel, you have no responsibility there. And you could even eat off the plate itself. This is the psak of Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach. Now, I would suggest that even the people that are strict would say that if you're in doubt, you don't have to be strict. Meaning they're strict if you knew for sure it wasn't Tovel. In cases of doubt, you could be lenient uh, either way. In New York, in big places that have a lot of, um, yes, I see a little question uh, from Jordan. What is the reason for a utensil not needing Toveling if it is only used in the early use or preparation. That was my example of the poultry shears that only cut raw chicken. Yeah, the reason is this. The reason is that, I mean, I'm not giving a logic necessarily, but the technical reason is that the halachic category that is used for the, the mitzvah of tevila is it has to be kli su'uda. Kli su'uda means utensils, that make the food edible for a meal. And therefore the concept is it has to be something that kind of gets it over the top so the food is ready to be brought to the table. And those things that are only used in a preliminary stage, so even after you cut the chicken, if it's raw, it is not something that will be uh, edible, is not called a utensil for a meal. Now, please understand me. Uh, I am referring to poultry shears that are only used for raw poultry. If you use the poultry shears both for cook, uh, cooked meat and for raw meat, then you shouldn't even use it for raw meat until you're tobilate, right? It, it, it's only a definition of what is called klisuda. Now, here is a very, very uh, interesting issue. First of all, just as a technical matter, you're not allowed to be tovel kalim on Shabbos and Yom Tif. Cholomoed you could, but not on Shabbos and Yom Tif. Why is that so? This is a rabbinic enactment, but the rabbi said the following. We know that one of the forbidden malachos of Shabbos is making a utensil. Now, normally that refers to construction or the last hammer blow, but by some type of analogical extension, if you're taking a pot that you weren't allowed to use, and now you're allowed to use it, you've made the pot functional, and because you've made the pot functional, being tovel a kli is a form of making a kli, and that's why it's going to be prohibited. So whatever the reason is, you cannot, even if there's an Arab and there's no problem with carrying, you cannot be tovel kalim on Shabbos and Yom Tov. Okay, now, other thing. In big uh, Jewish communities, like Brooklyn, um, yeah, ma ma mainly in Brooklyn, actually. You go to Borough Park, uh, Crown Heights, you go to different, different, uh, Flatbush, uh, Lakewood as well, Muncie. So you will find that the Jewish stores will do you a big favor. They say they have a mikvah on premises. I don't know if you ever saw that. They have a kosher mikvah on premises. And they say that all of the uh, pots and pans and dishes uh, that were manufactured by, by non-Jewish manufacturers are pre-toveled. They're already toveled for you. Uh, and therefore, you don't have to worry 
about being tovel. So that sounds great. That sounds fantastic. That's like a pre-check for shotness. That's a wonderful thing. When you buy some clothing and uh, there's a shotness tester in the store, uh, and that certainly is good, assuming it's an honest store and a reliable shotness tester, to have my clothes pre-checked so I don't have to buy it and then get it checked, that's fantastic, like wool and linen. So the question is, does pre-toveling work as well? So the bad news is, you really should not rely on pre-toveling. And let me explain why. The chiv of being tovel takes effect only when the purpose of your ownership of the vessel is to use it for food preparation. So I buy a pot to cook. It's now a kli of souda, which has to go to the mikvah. But when a kli is in a store, the store is not holding the pot for cooking. The store is holding the pot for inventory and merchandise. As a result, it does not yet have the status of a food preparation vessel because it is not being owned by the store for food preparation. It's being owned by the store to sell. So as a result, the immersion of the store of that vessel for you may not count as a valid tefillah. You'll have to do it again. Uh, but on the other end, if there's a mikvah on premises, you can be total it after you buy it. <laughs> after you buy it, that's going to, I hate it. that's going to be very good. All right, so that's an important thing to keep in mind that l'chatchila, you should not be somech, you should not rely on pre-toveling. Another thing to be aware of is that as a general rule for any type of immersion in a mikvah, any chatzitza, anything that separates between the person or the utensil and the water uh, is not good. And this is gonna be a big problem when you have labels and adhesive on various types of things, you have to remove them and clean the vessel, scrape off the adhesive, scrape off the uh, glue uh, before your tovel. Uh, if you were tovel bidiyeved without doing that, so then you have an interesting question. If you would not be embarrassed if somebody were to drink from your glass with that little bit of adhesive, then you don't have to be tovel again because it's not called the chatzitza if it only covers a small part of the area, and you're not embarrassed. Same thing with a man or a woman going to the mikvah. Uh, normally, you have to remove, you know, makeup and all sorts of things that could block the water. If you forgot to remove a certain spot of mascara, the question would actually be, if you're not embarrassed to be seen that way, then bidiyeved, after the fact, it is a good, it is a good immersion. Okay. So all of this uh, is really some general information. I hope uh, the general information is, is useful to you. Uh, let me just, one more bit of general information. The Torah commandment of immersion is only on metal vessels. Uh, rabbinically, it includes glass. Uh, as a result, therefore, whenever you're tovel glass, we encourage you to also be tovel metal. So that way, uh, the bracha will be on a Torah commandment and not only on a rabbinic commandment. Okay. Now, why am I talking about this? Why is this relevant for Corona? So the answer is very, very simple, especially when we have a Pesach and we're coming up with the Shavuos. So people have dishes and cutlery and pots and pans uh, 
uh, that are new. Um, and if they were made in Chutzlaretz, made by Goyim or bought in Goisha owned stores, you're not allowed to use them unless you're Tovel, there's a mitzvah of Tefilas Kalim. And yet, because of the coronavirus, uh, either there's social lockdown and you're not allowed to move around, or, or people are afraid of using the Kalim mikvah because they're afraid that the water might uh, you know, be a, a, a source of, of the virus, etc. Although usually there's a lot of chlorine in the water, but people are still understandably afraid of this. Uh, and therefore, they're afraid of being tovel, their kalim. So what would the eights uh, be? This was a very, this was especially a big question for Pesach. When it's not Pesach, it's not such a big deal because, you know, all right, I don't have to use my new pots and pans. I can use my old pots and pans. But for Pesach, where people often have new dishes or whatever it would be, or new pots, what do you do? So here, it's very interesting that the poskim have come up with two very, very creative solutions for how to at least temporarily get out of Tevilas Caleb. Solution number one is sell your pots and pans to a goy. Now, why does that work? Because here is the conceptual framework. The obligation to be Tovel Kalim only applies if there's a transfer of ownership from a Goy to a Jew. When the claim moves from a Goy to a Jew, that is, and, and the Jew is holding it for food preparation, that is when there is a Chiyuv of Tevilas Kalim. But if I borrow a guy's utensil, assuming it's kosher, that's, obviously I normally can't do it, but assuming I know it's kosher, and I'm borrowing a utensil that belongs to a guy, interestingly enough, I don't have to be Tobel that because it doesn't yet belong to a Jew. And the thing that creates the obligation of being Tobel is the Jewish ownership. So what has been suggested, and this was done for Pesach, I'm not sure if it's available now, is that along with selling your chametz to the goy, you sell your Pesach Dika pots and pans to the goy. Now, let me point out that it's not so simple because here's the problem. Obviously, you're going to use your Pesach pots and pans to cook food before Pesach. Usually, that's going to be so if you're simply going to sell it with the chametz, the sale of chametz doesn't take effect until the, you know, the, the time when chametz is forbidden. If I want to use my pot a week earlier, I got to sell it to the guy a week earlier. So interestingly enough, what Rabbanim did in New York was they gave you a schedule. They basically said for the week before Pesach, we will be selling pots and pans. Like every day of the week, they gave you a time. On Monday, we're selling it at 10 a.m., Tuesday, you know, 10 a.m., Wednesday. So no matter when you bought your pot, you would be able to have it sold to a guy and uh, you would be instructed, do not use your pot until the day and time that it's sold to a guy. So for example, if, 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 if the Rabbanim sold pots on Monday, but I bought my pot Monday afternoon after the sale, I can't be covered by that sale. I'm only going to be covered by Tuesday's sale. So I wouldn't be allowed to use it until 10 a.m. Now, 
So it's very, very interesting. They actually create, I, I myself sold, we, we had four, four knives. <laughs> we had to make our first Pesach. You know, normally I, I go to a hotel as a scholar in residence. It's hard for us to make Pesach. And this year, for the first time in 25 years, we made our own Pesach. I have to say, actually, it was so nice that I may not go back to a hotel. I think both my wife and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, but we had four knives that uh, we never were told about. And I actually took advantage of selling it, getting it sold to a guy based on that schedule. Now, what's, then, now what's interesting is, this is actually a reversal of, of, a, of a halacha that we say in the opposite direction. And that is, normally, when you sell your chametz, you should not sell your chametz sticker dishes. Your chametz sticker dishes. Why? Because when you buy it back after Pesach, you'll have to be retovel them because you're buying it back from a guy. So in a typical sale of chametz, it is specified, I am selling the chametz in the dishes, but I'm not selling the dishes. So this is mamish, an interesting 180 degree flip. In other words, the dishes that you were tovel you bedafka don't sell to a guy, but the ish, the dishes that the dishes that you can't speak about, you bedafka do sell to a guy, because that will exempt you from immersion. But let me warn you, when you eventually buy it back, and you should buy it back, or get it back, you then have to be tovel. Right. So at some point you're going to have to be tovel because it's not proper to use this as an evasion. We allow this as an emergency measure because of corona or fear of disease. Uh, we don't simply tell a person, oh, sell all your stuff to a guy and uh, be putter from tefillah. So at some point, so I actually have to check myself. I don't even know the schedule. I mean, these knives are put away for Pesach, so I, we're not using them. But like, when did I, I guess after Pesach, I'm not sure actually. When, when do I get ownership? I'm going to have to check it. It's something that I, I had forgotten about and I'm being reminded of as I'm, as I am talking. Okay, now let me mention another solution that the postcom have given, which is actually even more interesting. And they have said, it's again, it's based on the same assumption that the only chiv of being tovel is when it goes from a goy to a Jew. Now, you have all heard of a term, I hope, called hefker. Hefker is the ability that any person has to declare his property ownerless. Right? I, I, could, I, could put, I could put my uh, computer, I just, I just put an old printer that was broken outside, and I said, Hefker, anybody that wants to take it can take it. Including me, I could take it back. Now, the halacha is like this. The halacha is that if something is Hefker, if something is ownerless, you don't have to be tovel it because it's not owned by a Jew. Now, in the normal case, if something is hefker and then I take it or someone else takes it with the intention of acquiring ownership, then you have to be tovel it because now it's owned by a Jew. But what if I declare something hefker and then I take it in and I specifically say it is still hefker? meaning anybody can come into my house and take it. I am not acquiring it. It is a hefker object that I am simply using, but it is hefker. 
Anybody could, could take it from you, theoretically. According to halacha, you don't have to be titled that pot or pan because it is not owned by a Jew. It is not owned by anybody. So as a result, even if initially it went from a guy to a Jew, if a Jew declares it hefker, I'll discuss the procedure. There is a procedure here. If a Jew declares it to be hefker, and when he then uses it, this is extremely important, he does not intend to acquire ownership. He leaves it in a state of hefker. He could use it without being title. But again, this is extremely important. Only if when he starts picking it up, he intends not to acquire ownership. In fact, every time he uses it, he has to intend, I am not acquiring ownership. Now, how do you make Rabbi, something happen? Yeah. Huh? If you, so if you declared your dishes, your new dishes or pots, hefker before Pesach, and then you use them on Pesach in that way, let's say yeah. now you decide that you, or whatever, Corona is over, you acquire them. Now, yes. do you have a chiyuv to go toivel yeah. them? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Once you acquire it, even from Hefker, you must be total them. Okay, so it's not just from a non-Jew. It's from a non-Jew or from Hefker. Well, 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 no, let me explain this. There had to be a non-Jew in the picture, meaning to say, uh, if it belonged to a non-Jew, and now a Jew is acquiring it even from Hefker, he must be told them. Meaning, if it never belonged, if a Jewish person, let's assume I made the, I made the claim myself. And then it's Hefker, and then your Kona, you don't have to be Togo because it didn't come from a, it didn't originate from a non Jew. So, yes, it is true that if it originated from a non Jew, even if I then made it Hefker, when, I, when I'm Kona it, I got to be Togo, but there has to have been that non Jew in the picture. You see? Thank okay. you. Yeah. So, how do you make things Hefker? This is very important. This is a procedure. You make things Hefker by declaring in front of three people who are not in your family, three unrelated people, this is ownerless. You can use the word Hefker or just say ownerless. And any one of you is, or anyone in the world is free to take it. See, so Hefker is not a joke. Hefker has to literally be a public declaration of sorts that this is ownerless. If you simply are sitting in the privacy of your house and you mumble words, Hefker, that's, that's not Hefker. Hefker has to be literally in front of three people. Now that itself may be difficult in Corona with social distancing and the like, but you know, but you know, go outside, three people and declare it as Hefker and they cannot be in your family. So this is again, I wanna point out that in a way, I understand that these might be treated as evasions. I gave you two evasions. One is selling the clay to a guy, and the other is declaring it to be hefker. Let me emphasize that these are not things you should do when you're not faced with an emergency situation. Normally, there's a mitzvah to be tovel, and we want people to do that mitzvah. It's a beautiful, beautiful mitzvah. We do not look for evasions. But when there's a certain element of danger uh, in, uh, in uh, doing it, so uh, this is called in halacha, shas hatchak, a time of emergency. So we have leniencies that the halacha develop. Of course, what is a more difficult question, maybe I'll, I'll save it for next week, 
is, okay, this works for pots and pans. How does it work for people? Uh, a woman has to go to the mikvah, a woman that is just uh, pre-menopause, has to go to the mikvah, a married woman has to go every month to the mikvah. And she's not allowed to have marital intimacy, not just intercourse, but even touching, hugging, and kissing without mikvah. It's an isra del raisa, very, very severe isra del raisa. Uh, well, there's no, there's no uh, selling to a guy or hefker. That, that's not going to work here at all. So what types of leniencies do we have for women who might understandably be fearful of going to the mikvah? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll hold off on this for next week. I just want to point out that uh, women's mikvahs, uh, because of the concern, uh, there are extraordinary precautions that are taken. The women's mikvahs right now are heavily chlorinated. Uh, there is the wiping off of surfaces by the mikvah attendants. Uh, the, the, the appointments are staggered so that there will not be more than one person there at a time, which can be very inconvenient, but it can be helpful as a public health measure. So I, I am not at all suggesting that using the mikvah is considered to be uh, dangerous. It actually, Baruch Hashem, is not. Men's mikvahs are not as well maintained as women's mikvahs. So for men, I would actually say they should not go to a mikvah uh, right now because things slip a little bit. But Baruch Hashem, the, the women's mikvahs are, are pretty good. And I would normally advise a woman to go to the mikvah. But nevertheless, the question is, a woman might be worried. Uh, she might be a high risk. Uh, she might have a family member, like a husband or a parent living with them, who may be high risk. So the question is, is there a type of leniency? So I'll discuss next week a bit of a bizarre idea, which is not acceptable. I'm only mentioning it because it's so interesting. But please, 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 double, triple, underline, not acceptable. That is, halachically, can a bathtub be turned into a kosher mikvah? There are a few unusual opinions that have actually said yes, and I want to talk about it because it's interesting. But please, please, please do not walk away. I'm going to lose my job if you quote me as saying a bathtub is a kosher mikvah. A bathtub is not a kosher mikvah, but there's an interesting discussion about why it might be. So God willing, we'll talk about that next week. Okay? All right, you all be well and have a wonderful week and uh, take care. Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi, take care. Shalom. Thank you, too. Thanks so Thank much, you, Rabbi. Rabbi. You're the best. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. I'm going to oh. end the meeting and restart it so that, um, yeah, okay, so it's recorded separately.